1: A warning of potential crypto staking ban in the U.S. Reports that Kraken is under an SEC investigation and a blast from the past as Satoshi era wallet awakens. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. My name is Mark Oliveira. I'm joined by my co-host Ash Bennington today.
0: How's it going, Ash? It's going great. It's great to be here with you, Marco. I feel like we were getting a little bit of a rhythm going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love the the rhythm and you know getting more of this and in, in place for sure. We also have Thomas Brazil from. 507 Capital with us today. How's it going, Thomas?
2: Yeah, it's going well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. We have a, a lot of uh, questions coming from our pro crypto member on the Block 5 bankruptcy process. That's what we're gonna discuss later today with Thomas on the show. But first, let's take a look at our latest price analysis. Bitcoin is moving away from the threshold of 23,000. It's currently trading at around 22,600, slightly lower on the day, and 5% lower over the past week. That's despite the Bitcoin blockchain activity hitting a two-year high. We're gonna have more on that later in the show. Ash, how's Ethereum doing?
0: Marco, Ether is making a similar move in percentage terms to Bitcoin. ETH currently trading at just over $1, $1,600. That's a fall of 2.5% on a trailing seven-day basis. However, Ether has caught up with Bitcoin when it comes to year-to-date returns both cryptocurrencies are now up 36 percent year-to-date despite ether's weaker january performance than bitcoin lots of attention on ethereum's upcoming shanghai upgrade of course we've talked about it here on this show coindesk has reported a note from u.s investment bank jp morgan which expects the staking ratio on the ethereum blockchain to rise and rise considerably JPM says at the moment the ratio is 14%. The bank expects it to rise to 60% in line with other proof of stake networks. A big move there, obviously. The JP Morgan analysts say this would lower the yield from 7.5% to 5%. Remember, supply and demand uh, has an impact on that yield. Marco, that's Ethereum. Who's the best performer today?
1: So we're seeing modest gains today. Nothing crazy going on. There are three tokens with the highest gains on a 24-hour basis on coin market cap. These tokens are NEO, Rocket Pool, and Chainlink. NEO is up 13% as we speak, while the other two are up around 8%. Ash, let's look at some crypto news as well. Here's an interesting tweet from Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. Remember, this is coming from the head of a publicly traded U.S. company. He's talking about the U.S. regulator Securities and Exchange Commission. He says, quote, we're hearing rumors that the SEC would like to get rid of crypto staking in the U.S. for retail customers. I really I hope that's not the case, Ash, as I believe it would be like a terrible path for the U.S. if that were allowed to happen. Obviously, at this stage, they are unconfirmed rumors, but given the source, it's something that we should definitely should be taking seriously. What do you make of it?
0: Well, absolutely, Mark. I think that's uh, very well said. I want to bring attention to a couple of more tweets from Brian Armstrong. Here's the first one, quote, regulation by enforcement doesn't work. It encourages companies to operate offshore, which is what happened with FTX. And here's a follow-up, again, from Mr. Armstrong, quote, we need to make sure that new technologies are encouraged to grow in the U.S. and not stifled by lack of clear rules. When it comes to financial services and Web3, it is a matter of national security, and these capabilities can't be built outside of the United States," close quote. Uh, Look, Marco, this is a very big story. It's something I've been talking about here for a very long time. Uh, I've been calling this the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. I felt a little bit like a crypto Cassandra talking about this. Staking has changed the nature of the Ethereum ecosystem and has a lot of wonderful benefits uh, in terms of the technology, in terms of efficiency, creating a potential benchmark interest rate, et cetera, et cetera, on and on, uh, manifold benefits. But it has opened up, at least in my view, this is just my analysis here, to potential, potential sources of contention with U.S. federal law. One is the Howey test and whether it is or is not a security, and the other is OFAC regulation. That's the auspice of foreign asset control over at Treasury. Uh, so we need to be very careful here. You know, investment requires a very different way of looking at the world than, say, politics. Facts don't care about your feelings. Price doesn't care what you think of it. You know, there's a great Warren Buffett quote, or quote attributed to Warren Buffett, and paraphrase of Benjamin Graham, that in the short term, uh, markets are essentially voting mechanisms or voting machines, and in the long term, they're weighing machines. Look, the reality here is that whether or not we agree uh, with what the what federal regulators uh, or legislators, for that matter, uh, want to do, the reality is that's the law, and a publicly traded corporation uh, that has U.S. directors, U.S. officers, uh, and is regulated here in the United States like Coindesk has to abide by the law. There's just no other way around it. Uh, You know, I don't know what the metaphor here is. I guess you could have made the argument like 10 years ago where we saw the science on, on marijuana. Yeah, it's really not that harmful, but it doesn't mean that you can sell it in the middle of the street. You're going to get arrested. People really need to understand this. There's a tendency, you know, this is part of where we are as a culture right now. Red state America, blue state America, my team, your team, people get caught up in their feelings. Uh, Oh, this is terrible. It's a terrible idea. This is bad. Forget about that for a minute. If you're involved as an investor in this space, you need to understand probabilities and likely outcomes. The reality is this is a headwind, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. People need to understand the risks of investing in this space as well as the opportunities. I think we're all incredibly passionate here about the opportunities in crypto, but we need to understand that there is at least a, a period uh, in which there may be a frictional risk uh, basis that from, from these adaptations of federal law that maybe isn't in alignment. I mean, I agree with Brian Armstrong that it wouldn't be a good idea, uh, but the reality is whether or not it's a good idea is a very different thing uh, than whether or not it's likely to happen. You know... You know, he mentions this idea of, uh, I'll just read the tweet again. Uh, We need to make sure that new technologies are encouraged in the US and not stifled by a lack of clear rules. When it comes to financial services in Web3, it's a matter of national security that these capabilities be built out in the U.S. Now, you may agree with that statement. I would also say, right now, in terms of national security, this Office of Foreign Asset Controls at U.S. Treasury uh, monitors uh, transactions from so-called SDNs. These are uh, uh, they're foreign; they're essentially foreign nationals who are on the OFAC list, uh, and it means that they're not able to transact with U.S. banks. So, the way that staking currently works, and this is just a very rough description as as I understand it, what you have uh, in effect is a stake pool that's operated in this case by Uh, by Coinbase, a U.S. company. Uh, And if you have transactions where you have specially designated nationals who are transacting, it seems that most interpretations under federal law is they are not allowed to pass on the transaction. Now, the structure of Ethereum under the new staking model uh, here after the merge is that effectively you only have two choices. You can include the transaction, in which case you're in violation of federal law, or you can exclude the transaction, uh, in which case you're going to get slashed on the network. This is a really sticky situation here, Marco. And, uh, you know, essentially OFAC compliance Federal law is in contradiction with these ideas, these very important ideas, the ethos that people in the Ethereum ecosystem care very much about. Things like credible neutrality and censorship resistance. Credible neutrality is the idea uh, that no matter who you are, you get treated the same way on a network. Uh, Censorship resistance, obviously, is just what it sounds like. The ability uh, of individuals to transact on the network without being censored. This is an immovable object uh, and an irresistible force coming into collision. And that, I believe, is why we're getting this tweet uh, from Mr. Armstrong, Marco.
1: Yeah, I love that. Uh, It reminds me of Batman, the movie, uh, The Dark Knight, where he talks with the Joker and he says that. I do think that um, it's unfortunate, though, because I also see his point that innovation could head overseas if we do that. And I also think that there's also an additional Thing where sometimes it's really hard to stop something that's just like a naturally occurring thing in a country and life. There's another another just to bring another movie quote in. It reminds me of uh, I think you've said this before on, on air ashes. Is, uh, is Jeff Goldblum I guess from uh, Jurassic Park? Life finds a way, right? And yeah. so, so people might try to find alternatives. And they get the VPN. They get do all these other things, and they try to see if they, if something like staking happens. You know, this is it, it's it's a shame that regulators wouldn't try to. Um, they would they would attack it whenever people might find alternatives other like uh, in, 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 to to get that same access to that type of um, that type of uh, technology. Ash.
0: Hey, Marco, let me respond to those two points because I think they're excellent ones, and and you're precisely right. There is a risk of the U. S. getting left behind. I completely agree with Mr. Armstrong on that point. But again very important to understand the distinction between what you think should happen and what you think will happen. happen. Uh, and so, yeah, we can we can all agree uh, that this is, would be a bad thing for the United States if we didn't have the ability to innovate here and things could go offshore. It's a very interesting point that he makes about FTX, which of course was not regulated uh, in the offshore entity. But your second point is also an interesting one. Life finds a way, look, this is another, I, I think it's a fallacy that we commonly hear in this space. Can you prevent something from happening on the internet? It's very difficult to do. Uh, But that's really not the issue here. The issue here is whether uh, a corporation, a publicly traded US corporation with directors and officers who are US persons that's regulated here in the United States will be able to operate. Look, the assumption about the valuations of these protocols, of these networks, prices in the idea that it's not a fringe technology, that you have to have a a VPN that you're running on your Raspberry Pi to run it. The idea uh, that the people in this space who care about this technology are so passionate about mass adoption, that these things are going to be used in, in transactions, in finance, in the banking system. That's what we're thinking about here. That's why we're so excited about it. Could it be something uh, that's very difficult to censor? Sure. But you know, if, it is, uh, if, it's, if there is a, a violation of federal law, if it's banned by federal law, if certain activities are banned by federal law, a very, very different uh, situation that we'd find ourselves in in a very different ecosystem. But, you know, those points are spot on. And all of these kind of contradictory ways of, of seeing the world and thinking about this, on the one hand, this, on the other, that, that's what makes this space so interesting and so infinitely worth discussing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Infinitely worth worth discussing. Well, speaking about enforcement actions, there's another story that we're looking at here today. The SEC might be taking in the coming days against the crypto space, and this is the Kraken under SEC probe. According to a source speaking to Bloomberg, U.S.-based exchange Kraken is under investigation. The SEC is looking into whether Kraken has been offering unregistered securities. The Bloomberg source says that the probe is in its advanced stages and a settlement could be coming soon. Kraken declined to comment to Bloomberg. Obviously, this wouldn't be the first time that Kraken has been under scrutiny by U.S. regulators. Ash, what do you make of it?
0: Well, that's exactly right, Marco. And this is, you know, precisely follows on the last story. According to Bloomberg, last year, Kraken reached a settlement with U.S. Treasuries. OFAC office again that's office of foreign asset uh, control we just talked about this uh, that there was a violation uh, that this is what they reached the the accommodation over uh, that there was a violation over US sanctions against Iran these are things that nation states take very seriously uh, and in 2021 the SEC settled with Poloniacs over accusations it registered uh, excuse me it was it ran an unregistered digital asset exchange coinbase has also perhaps perhaps uh, been indirectly implicated uh, by SEC and again indirectly uh, of offering unregistered securities as part of an insider trading lawsuit I say perhaps because it depends on how you interpret it because the former there was a former coinbase uh, manager someone who worked at coinbase who changed his plea from guilty to not guilty this week uh, over federal charges uh, that he basically he pleaded guilty to two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud in federal court uh, in Manhattan here in the Southern District of New York look these are very real very material concerns when you have the federal government uh, you know, essentially saying that some of these activities are, are prohibited, whether they're in violation of Office of Foreign Asset Control, sanctions regimes violations, or whether or not they are offering unregistered securities. Again, uh, that has not been the finding in the case of Coinbase, but it is uh, something that we're thinking about and we're talking about. Look, I can see in the YouTube comments here, uh, people are saying like, well, you know, this is control and we shouldn't be doing this. Again, when you're thinking about this, if you're listening to this or if you're watching this show, remember, perhaps the most valuable lesson you can take from, from this conversation is remember to understand the difference between what you think should happen and what you think will happen. Analyze the forces that are at play here. Uh, if this were physics, you'd wanna look at gravity and friction. In, in case of investment, you wanna understand US law, the federal courts and regulatory agencies. These are important, important uh, entities that have a significant bearing on price and on the development of the ecosystem, Marco.
1: I agree, I agree, Ash. Well, moving on to some more positive news here, right? So we, to all the Bitcoiners out there, we have several interesting stories. Uh, let's start with something that's been causing a bit of controversy. So according to data from CryptoQuant, uh, cited by CoinDesk, activity on the Bitcoin blockchain has reached a two year high. The last time the network was so active was just before China banned crypto mining. And that's in a big part in thanks to NFTs. A protocol called Ordinals allows, to store, allows us to store NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. BitMEX says 13,000 ordinals have been minted since it was launched in mid-December. Ash, this has caused a lot of debate in the Bitcoin community. What are your thoughts there?
0: Well, you know, uh, as you say, Marco, this is a story that is not without controversy. Obviously, this is a very different application for the Bitcoin blockchain. uh, And it shouldn't surprise anyone, I suppose, that Bitcoin purists have some concerns about what probably is seen as mission creep here. You know, Bitcoin has been remarkably dedicated to a single idea, and that is this idea of uh, a kind of digital money, off-the-grid storage of value, peer-to-peer transactions, uh, solving the double-spend problem for digital currency. I want to read a a quote here from Renee Picard. uh, And the quote is, um, so adamus 3 us this is a a Twitter address, invented hash cash as a spam prevention mechanism. Then Satoshi utilized this in Bitcoin to solve double spending. And now folks waste precious blockchain, excuse me, precious block space by spamming JPEGs, question mark, exclamation point? Why creating the Lightning Network in the first place if the base layer allows this shit? Look, this is a sentiment here that you uh, you probably shouldn't be surprised to hear from Bitcoiners. The idea here is uh, that this is mission creep. It's chewing up block space. It's chewing up valuable resources on the blockchain network. Uh, this is a controversy here in Bitcoin. It's an open protocol, so you don't really have the ability to to clamp down on these things again. Uh, these are some of the frictions that we see in the space. And by the way, the, the quote at the end, I, I, I happen to see uh, the point here that Rene is making, uh, that this sort of thing should be saved for a layer two. That's what he's making reference to in the Lightning Network here. Uh, but again, once again, it's a, it's a controversy in this incredibly young, incredibly vibrant, incredibly exciting space.
1: Yeah, I think it's also something that uh, that I mean, it's causing controversy, but it's also attracting attention, I believe, too. I mean, I think even Elaine had called me earlier today and she's like, oh, you can you can bring your on-chain monkey because I have an on-chain monkey. You bring it on your on-chain monkey onto uh, onto the Bitcoin, onto this thing, through this. And I was like, it was was interesting. People are getting excited. I'm seeing tweets about it. And I think anything that attracts people to something, right, is a good thing, especially in this industry where we're trying to desperately get, you know, more people onboarded onto onto crypto, I think it can be a good thing. And I think sometimes, you know, one of the the issues with uh, people I think prematurely kind of coming to conclusions like, oh, why waste this space? And again, no criticism to this user, but, you know, some stuff like that eventually gets built out. You know, eventually we can transition to layer two. And I think what's important at this moment, at least in my view, would be bringing people onto the space.
0: Well, that's a good point, uh, Marco. We should commit to getting this debate here on Real Vision. By the way, I'm looking at the YouTube comments right here, and I see uh, T. Tib I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's a good point. He says, Bitcoin fork number three incoming. Uh, so again, uh, that's the implication that this could have for the space, uh, and it's a conversation that we'll continue to have here, Marco. <laughs>
1: Well, so there's some more stories that we have here for Bitcoin, Ash. So uh, they can both be classified as a blast from the past. First up, this report from Benzinga. It says a wallet containing $9.6 million worth of Bitcoin has been activated for the first time in 10 years. It holds more than 400,000 Bitcoin. The stash was worth only $8 at the time. The wallet was emptied at the price of Bitcoin at $23,000. That's a return of 120 million percent from the eight million. It's pretty amazing to see, right?
0: Yeah, that's a pretty nice cost basis to have in Bitcoin. Look, this story is important, and people uh, always find these interesting because these early wallets sometimes they're presumed to have been lost. Uh, occasionally, they get refound. I guess is the word. Uh, it comes back online, and you get these stories of these 120 million percent returns, and they're always interesting.
1: And there's there's some stories out there too where people have uh, had some 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 not as good stories. I I remember I read yeah. one where like there was there was a guy was looking in a in a garbage. Um, a garbage dump for like an old computer he threw away they might have bitcoin right in it, so it can it can also yeah. be sad some people like have um probably they're like miss they feel like they're missing out because they had access to it earlier
0: i don't know how i could get out of bed if i bought eight bucks worth of bitcoin that was worth 120 million dollars
1: I agree. Well, on on another sadder note here, a peer-to-peer exchange local Bitcoins has shut down after 10 years in business. The company has blamed, quote, the ongoing very cold crypto winter. Trading will be suspended on February 16th. After that, users will only be able to log in to withdraw their Bitcoin, Ash.
0: What do you think of that? You know, this is an interesting one. We were talking about this off camera a little bit. Uh, the idea that in the, the block uh, that reported this article notes that KYC was not originally part of the local Bitcoin's uh, network, and now it is. So, you know, once again, we're seeing all these challenges with harmonizing current existing legislation regulation here in the United States. I don't know to what extent that played a factor in it. We know the block reported it, uh, but it is an interesting, at least, avenue to think about uh, in terms of why this may or may not have closed.
1: Because when we were speaking off earlier, I mean, that was part of the initial uh, the attraction of Bitcoin was this peer to peer nature of it. And uh, And now, you know, people, for the most part, when they're buying them on centralized exchanges where you do have to put KYC and. And 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 offer this information to be able to buy it. So uh, I know that there's some people out there who were very um, enthusiastic about the initial type of you know sentiment around the the Bitcoin community, and that they might be disappointed by this. But uh, you know, onwards right. and upwards, right?
0: Well, it's interesting because this is, again, like most things in the space, this is a story that has two sides. Some people are, of course, going to be disappointed uh, because they had these, you know, the true libertarian values, the idea of peer to peer money, very exciting to a lot of people. And for a lot of people, it's disappointing uh, to see local Bitcoin shutting down. The flip side is there are other people who are very much enthusiastic about this becoming an institutional grade asset. And they see this uh, regulation, this march forward, this harmonization, this embrace of the federal, uh, you know, framework for how uh, assets get transferred as a positive thing. You know, again, depends on your perspective, where you're coming from philosophically on this, what your view is.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, with that said, let's bring in our guest. I mean, we have to get to this uh, to the BlockFi stuff because this is really some important thing, uh, important uh, the proceedings that we want to be covering here. So, Thomas Brazil is the managing partner at Five Hundred Seven Capital. He specializes in distressed asset investments and is here to talk today about the BlockFi bankruptcy proceedings. Welcome back to Crypto Daily Briefing, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You're the perfect person to have on today. We have a list of questions submitted by our pro-crypto member who wishes to remain anonymous. These are exactly as submitted to us, unedited by a, subscribal- a subscriber, but of course not given to by a journalist. I'm sure many viewers would have similar questions, especially if they had funds on BlockFi or other bankrupt crypto lenders. Full disclosure, BlockFi has been an advertiser on Real Vision in the past. So let's start with this, Thomas. Um, First, could you explain to our viewers your involvement in this currently ongoing bankruptcy litigation? Are you representing anyone in this case? Do you have positions in the coins or claims against the coins? And do you have any other potential conflicts of interest, positions, or claims in this case?
2: Uh, In BlockFi, no, I don't think we have any positions. We, of course, have been actively following the case. Uh, but don't have any positions in BlockFi.
0: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Hey, hey, Thomas, time. just as a, just a general introduction, tell us a little bit about what you do and how you get involved in these cases.
2: Sure. So uh, we work predominantly for you know, a large family office or high net worth individual that might want access to distressed opportunities directly. So our majority of our time is spent on regular wave sort of distressed opportunities. And because of the recent crypto uh, winter environment, we've been focusing uh, a lot of time on this space. Um, so looking at if everyone buying claims, providing alternative financing, whether credit or equity, uh, or even buying a state property, those are those sort of our three areas of focus.
1: Well, with that said, Thomas, let's go through this list. So this first question, BlockFi initially described its situation as the antithesis of FTX and vowed to keep client needs as the highest priority. Has there been any significant difference between how BlockFi and FTX have conducted themselves that has benefited BlockFi clients as BlockFi
2: inferred? I think so. I mean, clearly with FTX, it's sort of a shock to the entire system. Um, You know, I'm sure there were people that, you know, called it ahead of time. But I think, you know, a lot of people were sort of shocked by the revelations of asset dipping and, um, you know, by Alameda and by uh, Sam Bankman fried and so, yes, I think, you know, pre-petition clearly, but post-petition, you like to give the benefit to these state professionals and say that things have been uh, basically the same across those two dockets. You know, of course, the difference is is FTX is going to take years to unwind and hopefully someone like a BlockFi and some of the other cleaner cases or cleaner uh, pre-petition activity cases uh, will be able to get in and out of chapter within a, a suitable time, call it a year, 18 months.
0: Thomas, can you give us the the thumbnail sketch, the fifty thousand foot overview of what's happening right now with BlockFi?
2: Yeah, so basically they filed uh, really in the you know revelation of their line of credit being pulled, which is FTX going under. Um, you know, they claimed that they're, I should say, they had they thought they had collateral from FTX with uh, Robinhood, and now it appears that that collateral is been pledged a few times, and <laughs> probably a kind way to say it. There's there's some issues around who actually has first right on that. And uh, I think it's the appropriate thing to do. Um, I think I've been generally impressed with their organization, um, you know, in their case, in in the docket. And they're trying to find a suitable solution, uh, whether it's selling themselves or doing a plan of reorganization that gives creditors the vast majority of the company, if not all of it, really. Um, So it's the right thing to do. Um, It's all you can do. And I say that... You know, I know we're talking about crypto projects going offshore, but when you talk about creditor um, transparency and uh, the ability to, you know, have a solid rule of law, when it comes to these situations, it's hard to beat the U.S. So it's interesting to see the juxtaposition of the two things. For innovation, you know, maybe you don't want to be onshore because they, you know, no regulator wants to try to stick their neck out and put real rule, rules to the road on. And yet, when it comes to cleaning up the mess. I can't think of a better jurisdiction than the U.S. Mm. Mm,
1: that's a good point. Cleaning up the mask, no better jur- jurisdiction than the U.S. Well, on to this uh, second question here. BlockFi recently received court approval to pay retention bonuses to employees. How common is this during Chapter 11 proceedings? What are the advantages and disadvantages of this approval for creditors?
2: So it, this goes back to the U.S. point, which is they're called CARPs or key 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 Employee Retention Bonuses. And it's not just a bonus, it's really about incentive packages for keeping people to stay on. They're absolutely critical. Sometimes hard to swallow because people will see them and say, oh my God, they're paying this guy half a million dollars and this guy, you know, a million dollars. Well, if you don't, then Binance is going to poach that person and Coinbase is going to poach this person. And so it's actually quite important um, to keep the key people in. That doesn't mean you should just be throwing around money as a debtor, and I really don't think they do that. And it's important for um, people to push back if they don't agree, but uh, it's critical because these businesses are kind of on life support. And the last thing you want to do when someone's on life support is you know, to not pay the doctor. <laughs> so you got to kind of pay uh, the right people to, to be incentivized to stay on board. And this has come up in, in other dockets, but it's good to see, you know, that they're thoughtfully thinking through it. I mean, you know, uh, if people really get into the details and don't agree with someone's you know, retention bonus or that they're they're so necessary or if it's too much, there should be real, you know, what's called motion practice where people can have the opportunity to object and, you know, the judge and the court can rule. But I think it's important for these cases. I mean, none of these debtors, none of these cases are worth anything. Well, there's a, there's a bound. The bound is what the crypto they have on their balance sheet. That's the downside. And then any additional recovery. After you look at the hole in these balance sheets, is going concern value. And you don't have much of a going concern value if you don't have employees. So
1: that makes sense. Uh so this next question here: the bankruptcy judge for Celsius recently ruled that transfers, withdrawals could, should be subject to a 90-day clawback. How does this ruling affect the BlockFi unsecured creditors committee's position that BlockFi should allow wallet holders access to their assets? If BlockFi were a bank, Would it have to recover all withdrawals in the 90 days prior to the pause?
2: That was a compound question, is what my (laughs) lawyer would say. Uh, So they will start at the back and come forward. There is some case law on bank runs before, I think, the the 1986 change to the bankruptcy code. And preferences are still pursued, actually, in uh, uh, financial uh, uh, insolvencies, whether it's a bank or something that could sort of look like a bank. Um, so the answer to that last question is yes. They do. They do sometimes go after preferences where you have um, financial institutions to go under. There are safe harbors the financial institution um, preference actions uh, that you're referring to these clawbacks. And then I can't remember the original start of the question. Oh, Celsius, where uh, you know, the judge said maybe you should go after. Maybe it's possible to go after. All he's really doing is saying. He's trying to be as narrow as possible and say, we're not sure, but it's possible these are preferences. And that's what he's saying when he says that we can send home the money for custody accounts is we know that certain aspects we cannot go after. So let's go ahead and send that home. But there is a possibility there could be credit recoveries here. And so we're gonna hold back on that. So he's, he's trying to be as narrow as possible and be as correct as possible. Um, so there's a, there's a precision that he's trying to use, because if they get a plan done that something that's consensual, then you don't really need to have a discussion around preferences or clawbacks. You can sort of consensually do things. And so bankruptcy judges are really smart and they sort of try to be as focused narrowly on what they can grant without being wrong. And so that's really what, what Celsius, uh, Judge Glenn is doing in Celsius. He's trying to be as thoughtful as possible without overstepping, because sometimes you don't even need to decide on these issues; they get resolved via settlement, and so that's what I would say. So, BlockFi guys saying that they want to like open up withdrawals—it's kind of incredibly premature and kind of a silly, you know, silly motion, silly idea at this point.
1: And and for the viewers who might not know what clawback is, could you briefly explain that too, so they may have some context for the
2: for what we just spoke about too. Sure, so this is, this is uh, I don't think it's ever been called clawback until these crypto insolvencies. Basically, there are two sections of what are called avoidance actions in the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. One is a preference under 546C, the Bankruptcy Code, which says that I look back 90 days pre-petition for any withdrawals. And I, and unless you have a defense for those those withdrawals, uh, I can claw that back as a preference. So you basically give me the money back and I give you a claim for that amount that I, I quote unquote clawed back from you. And you also have what are called fraudulent transfer statutes generally it's it's two years under u.s bankruptcy law and then state law generally looks like something back like six years um so those are the general provisions that allow for quote unquote clawbacks but the clawback is not defined in the bankruptcy code so if someone wants to google and try to learn more you should google preferences and fraudulent transfers in u.s bankruptcy code
1: interesting preferences and uh, fraudulent transfers So then the fourth question that we have here, a group calling themselves the Ad Hoc Committee have gathered donations and hired a lawyer to represent them in an attempt to force BlockFi to honor transfers and withdrawals acknowledged by BlockFi's user interface, but that occurred after the so-called pause. Does the Celsius ruling effectively nullify any hope for them?
2: No, I don't know the specifics of what motion they're gonna bring or have brought. Traditionally, you do have debtors that will honor um, um, payments that are in, process, you know, in, in, the, in the queue to be processed, um, but in these instances, since any money that went out would could potentially be a preference, the judge is clearly not going to grant that relief right now. They'll just say it's premature. You might be right, and maybe there's no preference, but I'm not going to rule on that today. There's too much other big stuff going on and you know you're kind of a fringe issue and you can get in the line uh with uh you know with the other creditors that have grievances and right now i want to focus on the main corpus of this case which is trying to figure out what this debtor is going to do to get the highest and best result you know because the longer these cases sit in bankruptcy the more they chew up in administrative expenses which just eat away at the recoveries to creditors So he's trying to start with the big fish and move his way down to the smaller items and this is you know that's clearly a very fringe and small item
1: This next question here is: Has there ever been another time when so many retail investors have been affected, as has been the case for the many crypto bankruptcies? Can you anticipate any changes to the bankruptcy law resulting from these crypto-related cases?
2: Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Uh, These are unprecedented. Someone was telling me that Enron was the uh, largest, you know, in terms of amount of creditors' case. You know, something like ten thousand or something creditors. Imagine that, right? Like. BlockFi and Celsius and Voyager are making those look like nothing, right? Because they've got 300,000, 400,000, a million creditors. I mean, that's just astoundingly different. So I think the big takeaways from the bankruptcy code. The big one is probably uh, what's called uh, under section 107, which is the ability to redact creditor information. This is a standard that's really hard to meet. You basically have to say that there's imminent harm to the creditor or there's intellectual property that's um, being hurt by giving out this credit information. So that's the standard under 107, of the bankruptcy code. And I think that that's way behind the times of where a lot of creditors feel. Like, you know, in Celsius, a lot of creditors felt like they were doxxed. And it's around the same idea, which is, you know, Judge Glenn, who ruled and gave it a pretty thoughtful opinion on this, said like, look, 107 is pretty clear. You need either imminent harm or it needs to be, uh, you know, hurting the intellectual property of the debtor. You know, bus- You know, like actually the business assets by giving out this creditor information. And I think a lot of creditors feel very differently about that. You know, GDPR has come out in Europe and other places, and a lot of people involved in crypto are very interested in privacy and, you know, just kind of autonomy. And I think that I think that that's the biggest one I see is, you know, creditor disclosure and the ability to have some semblance of privacy, even if your, you know, crypto, CFI exchange goes under.
0: By the way, this is a pretty good example of what we were talking about earlier, I think, which is this notion of the conflicting cultures between, for example, federal law, the federal courts, uh, and the ethos of the crypto space. So, you know, the imminent harm uh, standard is relatively high in terms of creditor disclosure, uh, but that's not the expectation that many people who are in the crypto space have. Uh, and so, you know, this, this again is just a, a culture clash. That I, I would be surprised if most federal bankruptcy judges know what the phrase doxed means. Uh, and, and this yeah. is this, this weird place that we're in right now is, as crypto just continues its, uh, it seems, inexorable rise, uh, that you're going to have these kind of cultural collisions in the cases uh, like the one we see before uh, this court.
2: Well, can I, can I, can I add something no, to this? So, please. creditor collisions on this issue. Um, I recently have had a few people uh, reach out to me about trying to tokenize bankruptcy claims, which I think is a fantastic idea. Um, but it's a little problem—we <laughs> don't really, we don't really have strong laws around, you know, what's a security, what's not. Is this a Howey test? Um, and then if you try to take your business, which you know some of the stuff, okay, it's all offshore, but then you try to bring it onshore because you're talking about a U.S. bankruptcy. We don't know how the bankruptcy court and the sort of, you know, move, move fast and break things approach to some of the crypto projects would, would, would fit. And so you could really have a clash on some of those things. I, I think it's a fascinating idea that some gentlemen, some people are trying to cook up and, and take it to the next level. But Ash, as you bring up, like that could be, you know, an absolute tornado, those two things hitting each other.
0: Absolutely, and it's this contrast again between what I think is a fantastic idea on the one hand, and what I think is likely to happen uh, or to be banned under federal, state, or local laws on the other. You know, for for people who aren't familiar with the bankruptcy process, and I imagine there are probably a lot of people who are listening to this right now uh, who are not really familiar with the way uh, that bankruptcy works in the United States. I'm not a lawyer; I'm not an expert on this either. But if you want, like, kind of a crude metaphor uh, for the way you think about this, like, we live in. If you live in the United States, people say all the time, "It's a free country. I can come and go as I please. I can associate uh, with who." Whoever i want i can come home and go out with whatever at whatever time i want uh, that's not the case for example if you're under uh, if you're on probation uh, as, a, as a as a as a you know someone who's been uh, paroled from from prison uh, and in, in some ways uh, and it's, it's, it's a crude metaphor here, uh, but a bankruptcy is is very similar in that courts have oversight of just about every aspect uh, of, uh, of a creditor's uh, op- ongoing operations when you're in federal bankruptcy and, and the reality is that the you know the ability of crypto to have certain applications is one thing, but the ability of federal bankruptcy uh, courts, for example, to permit it a very, very different point
2: yeah and 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 I'd love to see innovation, but uh, it, but at the same time, like I would just worry about you know uh, those two things colliding. but I, I actually think these cases are great. I think they're great for the crypto ecosystem. They're great for crypto asset owners because there's a lot of uncertainty around certain um, if you own assets in crypto, you know what are the legal uh, touch points and touchstones that we need to define better? I know guys that were working on updates to the, the the uniform commercial code when it came around digital assets have done great stuff, but we need to see this stuff in action. We need to see what happens when you go to court. And you know, unfortunately, there will be some fallen brethren of you know crypto believers that will will have to fall on the sword. Whether it's the terms of use and how they are interpreted in FTX, or excuse me, in Celsius, and then maybe in FTX, and then like you know lending and borrowing markets. When you look at how Gemini earned uh, customers are being treated and and just seeing all this play out so we get a lot more clarity how crypto assets are interpreted by federal courts I mean because bankruptcy is a federal court I mean this stuff is quite important case law will come out of these cases
0: yeah, one more important point I think that uh, people need to understand here about this framework, as we as we discuss it, uh, is that one thing that we haven't talked about here, and where I think a lot of these problems uh, emanate from, is the absence of legislation uh, around this. There just aren't laws that apply to this. This, you know, if you're uh, if you're an intellectual lawyer, uh, this is a, a conversation that uh, happens all the time in legal circles. It's a a large sort of uh, point of contention in the United States between uh, people who tend to be left of center and people who tend to be right of center. Uh, if you're right of center, there's this phrase that you hear all the Time legislating from the bench. Uh, this is the idea that uh, that judges, especially federal judges, apply uh, laws in new ways. Uh, conservatives don't like this. They believe that legislatures uh, should be the one who establish exclusive rights over laws. Uh, on the other hand, uh, people who are left of center, progressives, tend to say, "Well, you know, laws." Uh, are not something that can apply to every situation. Federal judges need wide latitude, wide discretion uh, in the way that they apply right. the law. And the challenge that we see right here specifically is, and we've talked about this many times on this show, uh, federal law, state law simply does not accommodate digital assets, cryptocurrency. It's just a totally different model, a totally different paradigm, a totally different framework. And as a consequence of this, uh, judges, often federal judges, have to make these rulings in the absence of very clear legislative guidelines that uh, we presume that they would like to have. So that's one of the challenges here. And as we move forward, uh, this is something that hopefully will begin to evolve. But I have to tell you, laws do not move and legislatures do not move at the speed uh, of open source software development. So it takes <laughs> years, sometimes decades, to get legislative solutions to these process, uh, to these problems. Uh, and the challenges uh, that we see uh, right now are these tensions between the technology, uh, the law, and the interpretation of the law. So it's a pretty complex system.
1: Very yeah. complex, indeed. Mm-hmm. Oh, please. Go.
0: Yeah, it's fun. To, I mean,
2: for me, it's exciting because there's a lot of case law will come out of this. And I really hope it helps crypto asset owners. But I know it's a it's a pain point And it's a reset in the in, in, in the ecosystem. But I'm also glad as a distressed investor and as a sort of, a, you know, sort of very legally minded when we approach these things, a the case law for crypto asset owners great for the ecosystem long term to get more clarity on these issues. And even if you think about all the new players that are showing up to crypto um, from a distressed and opportunistic investment standpoint, putting in bids, you know, like sh- sharpening their pencil, learning about protocols. It's kind of a, a, you know, I think it's great for the ecosystem long term because, you know, all, all markets go through cycles and, you know, the vertical of crypto is no different. And so it's, it's fascinating to watch all these new entrants show up and sharpen their pencil and learn about stable coins and learn about you know, whatever, Ethereum and, you know, whatever. What's wrapped Ethereum? You know, you should get these questions like that from more TradFi uh, distressed institutions. So it's exciting, honestly. Well, as we speak about
1: clarity, this six, uh, this next question here, it says, uh, BlackFi tweeted a message that transfer withdrawals were paused and has asserted that the tweet was sufficient legal notice. Is the use of a tweet as legal notice precedent setting? What aspects, if any of the current state of crypto related bankruptcies are setting new precedents for bankruptcy law in the US?
2: Hmm. Whoa, lots of new precedents. Um, Okay, so the tweet is interesting because legal notice through a tweet. Hmm, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, I'm just an investor, so I don't know. I'd have to ask a lawyer. Uh, You know, Three Arrows, they issued a subpoena over Twitter and uh, Judge Glenn in the chapter 15 allowed it. Uh, He's the same judge in Celsius. so you know, that's pretty, you know, I'm not a, not a, I'm more of a bankruptcy person than I am a legal expert, but those seem pretty unprecedented to me. Um, a lot of the bankruptcy code stuff already has been kind of unprecedented, whether again, like I said, creditor redaction, uh, and, um, you know, we're going to, the preferences and fraudulent transfer stuff is going to get really interesting. You know, you're supposed to value that time at the date of the, you know, I think we spoke about this maybe last time I was on Ash, but you have this idea of dollarization, so you're supposed to basically, you know, treat everybody's claim as if it's liquidated on the date of the petition. Well, if crypto five X's, who gets that uplift in value? Yeah. Does the claimant get that, or does the equity holder get that? Now that seems pretty inequitable if it all goes to, I don't know, SPF. <laughs> so you you have real issues here. Now now, uh, also the terms of service in FDX are a little interesting, which they kind of say title never passes hands, but we'll leave that aside for a minute. All the other cases are basically title always changed hands. And then um, so you have all kind of interesting precedents that have already been made um, and then will be made through these cases. Actually, the cleaner the case, the fewer precedents will be made because they won't be litigated. They'll just be settled. But the more litigious and the more me- the messier the case, uh, actually the more case law will probably come out of them. So Celsius, my bet would be Celsius and FTX make the most case law.
0: And by the way, are both of these are taking place in the Southern District of New York? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes for people who aren't familiar with their judicial judicial system called the Sovereign District of New York, this is uh, a place where (laughs) there's a lot of jurisprudence and a lot of experience in handling exactly these types of cases. And where a lot of case law, I think it's reasonable to say, gets established. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.
2: You know, the big bankruptcy districts, you know, and I hate to say it because it, it, it's, it's almost unfair that these these uh, these forums get used so much. But Southern District of New York, Delaware and Southern District of Texas, part of it is the ability for debtors to form shop um, because these are all federal districts. But you can basically kind of make a nexus in that, say, oh, we have an office in Houston. So we're going to file in Southern District of Texas because, we, you know, we want the judge we want. So there's a little bit of uh I would call it gamesmanship but strategy that debtors take when they do these things and um, I think that uh, is FTX TX Southern District or is it Delaware I actually don't know I shouldn't I shouldn't answer
0: that Ash. if you if you're saying it's Southern District I'll take your word for it um Joe take my word for it I think the crim- the criminal case against Sam Bankman-Fried is in the Southern oh, District the criminal I'm not case. sure about the, Yeah the yeah 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 no no
2: no the actual bankruptcy is in Delaware yeah I think
0: it's and you dumb. know the
2: criminal case
0: yeah the, the 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 criminal
2: case is interesting because you know we're doing an asset tracing exercise and it was interesting, super interesting. Remember, an in, in FDX, uh, the shares of um, of, um, of of Robinhood were owned by this this entity that Sam Sam was the beneficial owner of, and then it filed for bankruptcy separately, which is interesting because I assume they're going to try to claw back the government seizure of the of the uh, of the Robinhood shares. So there's all kind of strategy and gamesmanship that the lawyers are trying to take on. Um, mostly it's to, you know, to represent their clients, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And, uh, we'll see how some of this gamesmanship plays out, but yeah, Southern District and, Del- and, and Delaware are the big, um, big, you know, districts where a lot of case law is made for sure.
0: I should say, uh, FTX is in the, uh, in, in Delaware, but by the way, I, I knew, uh, Southern District in New York and Delaware, what's the deal in Texas? Tell me that story. That sounds like an interesting, uh. <laughs>
2: I don't want to blame it all. Gosh, this is like bankruptcy nerd, you know. Okay. I don't want to blame it all on Judge Drain or sorry, on Judge Judge uh, Judge Jones. But there's a judge down there that's very debtor friendly. And it's it is, you know, Texas is a big economy. So there's lots of oil and gas bankruptcies. Right. And you kind of get a it's almost I think I think in economics, they call it hysteresis. You kind of get yep. like a like a cottage industry of people in an area. And then it sort of feeds on itself, like everybody goes to Hollywood to make films because everybody's already there in Hollywood to make films, and you know Chinatown or you know or you know, or, you know in a certain uh, city develops in a certain area because that's where Chinatown is, and then you know you get more and more sort of um, economic activity around that idea, and so I think the same thing. There, were, there's there's it's a big economy, and you have a lot of oil and gas. Um, uh, uh, you know entities as well, and so so that kind of like started the ball rolling, and you know from there, you know there're probably a few judges that people like to be in front of because they can be either very debtor friendly or I just say very debtor professional uh, uh, firm friendly, and so that means you know, the lawyers get tur- paid. Yeah, exactly. How'd you know? Thank you for reading <laughs> between the lines. There, uh, they like to get paid, and they but They really lift off rubber stamp. They don't want a lot of questions. They come in. They're like, we have the best interest of the debtor, you know, and all the creditors at heart, and we don't want a lot of questions. This is our motion. Approve it. <laughs> you know, so you know, they, there's a little bit of that foreign shopping, but um, you know, all, all federal judges are, you know, generally specialists in their field, generally extremely smart, and you know, people hate California because sometimes they can be too creditor friendly. And so they, they do generally try to stay out of, of California if they're a big big debtor. Um, but that said, like the federal judges are generally incredibly smart, very business attuned. So they understand business issues. Um, I think, you know, more so than maybe some other uh, courts where it's it's more like focused on the law. Like bankruptcy judges are basically, you know, very business minded. And so they weigh out the, the cost and benefits of being exactly right or being... Close to right and also being efficient because like you know you, you have to balance out that efficiency with being you know 100 accurate
1: Well so this next question here, this is the last one that we have from this um, from this pro crypto member. it seems that the uh, the UCC lost a significant battle with blockFi when blockFi withdrew its motion to allow transfers out of wallet accounts and the hearing on this issue has been delayed multiple times. Do debtors typically win disputes with the UCC or is it the other way around?
2: Generally, uh, you like to see some uh, collaborative um, solutions. So someone might file an objection because they're not getting what they need. And then, you know, you show up at a hearing and they say, judge, we know we've been talking over it. And we think we have a workable solution. So, you know, they want certain amounts with maybe they say, we want a certain relief, and they've decided they're going to give us this relief instead. And we're okay with that. And we found a solution we're going to compromise so you like to see collaboration but generally um you, you you see more collaboration and especially with the ucc because they're generally getting information from the debtor and um you don't like to see dueling motions from ucc and the debtor um but it happens things flare up there's real differences of opinion sometimes on issues and differences of agenda that people think are important and it has to be done through motion practice so you know, many times the debtor will win and many times the UCC would win. It's not, those are both, statu- you know, the the, the UCC is a statutory committee. And so the judges really take their motion seriously. If you're a pro se creditor showing up, filing all kind of crazy motions, the judge will listen and he's not going to just throw you out of court. But the likelihood of you winning it is extremely low compared to if a UCC uh, brings a motion he's listening extremely intently and saying, wait, these are the guys that are representing all the creditors in a fiduciary capacity. They really want this. Someone really better be able to explain to me why I shouldn't give them this. So, so they have a lot of um, latitude and, uh, and uh, will be well listened to by the judge.
0: By the way, a jargon alert, pro se uh, means representing yourself. It means oh, sorry. an individual creditor shows up in court and says, hey, listen to my claim. Uh, it has less weight than what you would see from the UCC.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Pro se means you shouldn't do it. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. <laughs> it's a very bad idea. I mean, you know, it's OK if you want to bring up issues. What if, well, you know, it's something different. You're talking about precedent and crypto cases. There has been a number of creditors that have brought up really good issues that the courts hadn't really thought through, and the judges have been listening It doesn't mean they've granted it, but they've put the UCC on notice or put a debtor on notice like, hey, I saw this motion. I'm not going to grant this. But is this true? Do these things really happen? Because if this is really what happened, uh, we should be following this guy's information and trying to take in and see if we can um, find workable solutions for that type of creditor.
1: Well, thank you for all those answers, uh, Thomas. I, uh, this and thank you to the to the pro crypto member who submitted them. We still have more questions. I know there was a lot of questions, but we have some questions from viewers now, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But first, for those watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com/crypto. forward slash That's the best way to access Real Vision crypto content, and it's always free. Tomorrow we'll release the uh, the latest Rouse Adventures in crypto. He spoke with the head of research at Delphi Digital, Kevin again that's realvision.com forward slash crypto and if you're watching on YouTube please like and subscribe and hit that notification bell well onto the viewer questions and this is from YouTube and it's coming from average Joe on YouTube companies like Matthew Rosick's block offer staking as a service do you think it will be affected by a staking ban and as a side note we're gonna have Matthew on the show next month what's your take on that Thomas
2: in my view, this is this this is not really a bankruptcy question, so I can't help the gentleman uh, or hopefully it won't become a bankruptcy question. So uh, <laughs> so so I so I hope he don't, won't need my my d- decent, you know, base of knowledge in bankruptcy. So I can't really give him much other than, you know, if it gets banned, you know, I, I suppose I'll have to find another solution. But, um, you know, up until then, I guess he, I guess he's fine. And, you know.
0: Yeah, I would, I, would just, I would just say, um, you know, the, the reality is this, this kind of plays into the point that I was making earlier. Uh, obviously, we don't know the exact intent of what's going to happen from a regulatory perspective here. Uh, but in the event that there is a ban on staking, again, we're not saying that's happening. Uh, but if that were the case, uh, all types of entities could be uh, within federal law uh, brought into that interpretation. So it's an open question and when we're going to watch.
1: This next question here, when we spoke earlier about uh, NFTs, referring to Bitcoin NFTs, uh, the question was, how are they NFTs when they're fungible? What's what do you think, Ash?
0: I'm, could you repeat the question? I'm not sure I really understand it.
1: Yeah. So he's uh, earlier we had that Bitcoin NFT story, and uh, related to that, he was saying, how are they NFTs when they're fungible? I'm assuming he's he's um, saying that the that the NFTs that are being, I guess, on the Bitcoin network are not they're they're not non-fungible they're fungible so how
0: are they nfts then or how would they be classified as nfts i don't know enough about the structure of the code but let me let me just answer the question a little bit more generally what what makes an nft an nft uh, is the idea that it is non-fungible. What that means is essentially there's a digital fingerprint that gets embedded into the token. Uh, one Bitcoin is equal to any other Bitcoin, I guess, in theory, unless there's a lien against it or something. But the idea here for fungibility is a pretty common concept in economics. Uh, for example, if you're trading uh, oil futures, one barrel of oil, West Texas Intermediate, is equal to any other barrel of West Texas Intermediate. Uh, and the idea is uh, this has been applied in, in, in the digital ecosystem to Bitcoin, to Ethereum, a bunch of other protocols uh, here. Uh, the concept of a non-fungible token is an individual NFT uh, that has a, a a a stamp in it, essentially a digital fingerprint that says, you know, this token is different from all others of the class. I don't know enough about this particular project uh, to comment on it, but my understanding was uh, that they were in fact NFTs. So we'd we'd have to get someone in to look a little bit more deeply into the code in this one.
1: Yeah, we'll have to dig into that and and figure that out for this viewer. Uh, this next one is for Thomas. It's from T uh, Account B on YouTube. What are the chances for company executives to use in peri-delicto as defense against creditors? Uh, peri-delicto is is Latin, of course, for an equal, an equal fault, a legal term used to refer to two persons or entities who are equally at fault. What what are the chances for the, for the company executives to use that as defense against creditors?
2: I mean, I'll start by saying I'm not a lawyer. I don't really understand. And there's one case that I think he's referring to in Celsius where uh, there's people that are saying that, uh, Alex Mashinsky might be able to use this against causes of action against them. I don't really understand the argument. I mean, the estate's not at fault. There are a lot of creditors that aren't at fault. There's, a, um, and so I don't really understand, uh, that sort of compared to Licto, you know, both hands are dirty. Um, I, I don't know. And, uh, it's probably best to seek legal advice if you want to get very technical on the ability of the estate to, uh, to pursue causes of action. And the problem I think people have is they almost want to be told exactly what the answer is for some of these things. Mm. And let's just be real. Like these cases, especially with crypto, I mean, in periodilicto has been argued, but when you start layering on crypto complications that have never been tested in a court of law, it's just very hard to know how the courts will come down on things until things have been fully briefed. And a lot of these things are extremely fact intensive. So sometimes you have the crypto unanswered legal questions and you have, fact intensive questions that have just not even come to light yet. So
0: it'll take time for this stuff to be developed, yeah. man. I can't even pronounce that, let alone, uh, <laughs> offer, a I of what's up. likely to I, I
1: struggle pronouncing it too. And then I have, uh you know, I have, yeah, I struggle pronouncing it too, so. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, both of you guys. This was a great show, and I appreciate you guys answering these questions. I know that some of them, you know, we, we really got into them really deeply, and I think that's going to be a real benefit for our viewers. I want to get on to final thoughts and key takeaways. Let's start with you, Thomas. What What is uh, some final thoughts, key takeaways you want to leave with the viewers from our conversation today?
2: Uh, you know, this is like part of, for me, I think these cases, uh, or the crypto sort of current restructuring cycle. I think long term is good for the ecosystem. I think it's good for crypto asset owners to have more clarity and for legislators to see these cases and say, oh, that's not what we thought would happen. Let's let's make sure we fix that. And so um, the cases are important to follow even if you're not involved with them. Maybe not like following the actual dockets, but maybe just reading the de- headlines on, you know, Real Vision or on the block or wherever you read your crypto news. And so I think it's important to kind of follow them along and and not just forget about them and chalk them up to like, oh, bad token economics or something like that. There's so much more to it that I think will come out of these cases. So for me, that's what I'm looking for as a sort of a crypto person, as well as you know, working in stress.
1: As more comes out, we'll definitely have to have you back on to kind of walk through these changes for our viewers so they can they can get a sense of what act what's ha- been happening. How about you, Ash? What what do you what, what's your, what final takeaways would you thought would you um, uh, have for our viewers?
0: Well, first, I always enjoy these conversations with Thomas. I always learn a ton uh, about this space. Look, I I would say, um, you know, for me, something that's really changed the way I think about the world is I, I, I constantly pause to ask, particularly in the crypto space, Is this something that I want to happen or is this something that I think will likely happen? Uh, You know, it's like you ever talk to someone uh, at a bar on election night and invariably they always come up with reasons why they believe they believe their candidate uh, is going to win. It's this bias that we all naturally bring to things. We we want something to happen and so we believe it's more probable that it will Uh, separate those two things in your mind uh, and you will be a, a better analyst, you will be better able to make judgments uh, about the likelihood, about the probability of future things happening. Uh, even if you don't like something, even if you feel morally revul- or a sense of moral revulsion to it, uh, understand that the probability uh, is un- sort of unrelated, unconnected to what your feelings are.
1: Well, thank you both again for, for coming on to the show. Thomas, it was a pleasure having you with us. Thanks so, for having me. Well, so for those of you watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell. That way you always stay up to date with the latest crypto analysis. If you're not a Real Vision crypto subscriber yet, don't forget it's free. Head to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. David Nage from ARCA will join us live. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.